I honestly, I, I love being a dad. I just can't even think of anything better than being a dad. So for me, today is just a great day where I just get to relax, enjoy, fire up the grill, and just have a great time. So hopefully you guys are going to be able to do that. But one of the other things about being a father that is hugely important to me, and I hope to all of you, is the family that we lead. We have a charge from God that as fathers, it is our job, it's our role, it's our responsibility to make sure that we lead our family well. And part of that is leading in spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, scripture reading, fellowship, and those kinds of things. This morning, as we continue on our look at Jesus' parables, we're going to look at prayer. And I titled this morning this morning's message, Justifying Prayer. And that was kind of preliminarily early on in my study, what I really felt like this was all about. But ultimately, as I began to continue on in the study, and then literally this morning, I, think, I thought to myself, oh, I wish I could rename the message in your bulletin. So I'm going to do that for you. You can cross out Justifying Prayer, and you can put on top, the sinner's prayer. Because that's what this parable is all about. As we look at this parable in Luke 18, we're going to see the sinner's prayer. Remember, a parable is a comparison of two similar things with a deeper meaning using an ingeniously simple word picture to illuminate a profoundly deep spiritual, uh, spiritual truth. And that is what this parable does. Sometimes we understand that parables are, are really simple. It's like, oh yeah, I got that. But we fail to look deeper into the parable to really see what Jesus is trying to tell us. Jesus began to teach in parables, remember, because of the continual conflicts that he was having with the Pharisees. Um, not only the Pharisees, but other religious leaders over their determined disbelief. And that's important to remember, especially as we go into looking at this particular parable in Luke 18. Last week, we had the privilege of looking at the parable of the soils, which was very likely Jesus' first parable. And we saw that the problem was not with the sower. It wasn't with the evangelist, the method, his charisma, the way he spoke, the way he did his sowing. The problem wasn't with the seed either. It, there was not a deficient gospel that was being sown. The problem was with the soil. Ultimately, it's all about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9, 3 said this, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterward, they go to the dead. That's the condition of our heart. That is the condition of the heart of every human being. This week, as we look at the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, one that we've heard so often, it's like it's become a comfortable old slipper that other people need to wear. They wear it to their discomfort, and we enjoy seeing them wear it to their discomfort, those legalists. And yet, this parable, paradoxically, both fits our feet 
and pinches them a little bit. We're going to see that today. The condition of the human heart is on display again in this parable. And today, I'd like to look at the kind of prayer God hears. That's what this parable is all about, the kind of prayer God hears. And as we look at the text, we're going to see six things related to prayer. Six things. I'm going to give them to you. The first four, we're going to go through really quickly. The last two is where we're going to really camp out our time. So these six things related to prayer are the people, the activity, the posture, the attitude, the object, and the content. Those are the six things that we want to see related to prayer. The people, the activity, the posture, the attitude, the object, and the content. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican seems so simple on the surface. And we so often misread it, drawing ungrounded comfort to our souls instead of the gracious discomfort that God intends to place on our heart. Let's look at this text, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Before we dive deep into this text, I need to set up the context a little bit. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem at this point in his life. He's making this roundabout route. Remember, we've talked about this as we've looked at the, the, the week leading up to and up to his crucifixion. We talked about this plan that Jesus had in the last months of his life where he traveled around Judea and Samaria up to Galilee and back down to Perea and then across the Jordan into Jericho and then into Bethany and ultimately into Jerusalem. And this is an opportunity for him to gather followers for that triumphal entry. This parable occurs in the context of that journey. He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem to die. He also told this parable, verse 9. Where was he when he told this parable? Go back to Luke 17, 11. Luke 17, verse 11, says this. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And we see that there were some events that unfolded here. This is probably the village where Jesus was when he told this parable. He heals these ten lepers. They go on their way, but only one returned to thank him. He then gives a prediction of the kingdom. He talks about the second coming. And then he gives this parable on persistent prayer in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. And then on to this prayer. Immediately following this parable, 
we see two tests. The young man, the rich young ruler, and we know how that resulted. He was so wealthy that he couldn't let go of that wealth, and he failed the test. Well, then later, the disciples are also tested. We've left everything. What do we get? They failed the test as well. They still didn't understand who Jesus was and what he was doing and what he offered them. Even after hearing this parable and seeing this rich young ruler. So Jesus performs a second miracle. The miracle of healing blind Bartimaeus in Jericho as they continue to travel toward Jerusalem. And then there is a second test immediately following this messianic miracle. Another test. Zacchaeus. You guys remember what Zacchaeus' profession was? He was a tax collector. And on this test... When Jesus said, Zacchaeus, today I am going to your house, Zacchaeus passed that test. This tax collector passed the test. He then goes on and gives another parable, probably one of the last parables prior to the Olivet Discourse, that he gives on stewardship in the kingdom. And then he goes into Jerusalem to die. There were at least... Three groups of people present when Jesus was telling this parable. Obviously, people in the village, his disciples, and then his target audience, the Pharisees. These were the people that he talked about in verse 9. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. When we look at the Pharisees, what word immediately pops into your mind? Hypocrite? Legalist? I would agree with you. Wholeheartedly. So what is a legalist? It was pretty amazing um, that I had picked this parable many months ago when Patrick and I were beginning to organize our sermon series in the, in the parables this year. And lo and behold, this month, Table Talk Magazine, the entire issue is devoted to legalism. This is incredible. I had the opportunity to sit down and read a bunch of this yesterday the delusions of man-made religion. If you can get a copy of this from Ligonier, I would encourage you to do it. It's fantastic. If not, go online. There's a lot of free articles that you can just download or read from this magazine. But Burke Parsons, he's the editor of the magazine, had a great article on legalism versus gospel religion. I want you to hear some of the things that he had to say. He says, legalism is this the invention of your own religious orthodoxy. It's answering the question, did God really say? And then you come up with your own response rather than the biblical response. Then, based on your own man-made legalistic inventions, you judge the hearts of others and tyrannize those whom Christ has set free. The invention of law, it involves the invention of law around God's law. And isn't that exactly what the Pharisees did? They added on to God's law? Legalists turned preferences into God's principles. Couldn't you just see it walking into church and seeing a huge sign of a, a, a picture of a man and a woman in a church? This is how you ought to dress? Isn't that legalism? And yet I know churches out there that do that. Legalism is saying you can't when God says you can. 
We should also understand, though, what legalism is not, because there is a fine line. And sometimes we accuse people of legalism when we ought not to. Legalism is not obedience to God and his law. If we see obedience to God and his law, that is not legalism. That is desiring to show God love. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room discourse before he died? If you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you will do what I ask you to do. That is love. Obedience to God's law. Learning to obey all that Christ has commanded us is not legalism. That's what we ought to be doing in our pursuit of holiness, in our practice of godliness. Pursuing holiness is not legalism. Striving to please God and glorify God in all that we do is not legalism. Being zealous in our good works and in bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is not legalism. But be careful that you don't lean on that and those good works, thinking that you're somehow earning something from God, because you're not. Legalism is not an error of Christianity. It is a different religion altogether. Legalism draws attention to us. Gospel religion draws attention to Jesus Christ. Legalism gives us glory. Gospel religion gives God the glory. Legalism is rooted in self-worship. Gospel religion is rooted in the glorifying worship of the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Legalism doesn't make people want to work harder. It makes them want to give up. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. And that's what these Pharisees did so well. And they understood how to do this perfectly in that culture. And Jesus railed on them over and over and over and over. All of these confrontations within the Gospels, and especially with these parables, were directed toward the Pharisees. Jesus sets up the stage for us in this next verse, verse 10. He says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray. The location is the temple. He's setting the stage here. The temple was the holiest place in all of Israel. It was the place that you would go to be near to God. It was the place of prayer. It is Its role as the cultural center of Jewish society cannot be underestimated. It is his destination, also on this journey that he's on once he enters Jerusalem. I don't think that he set up this parable by just picking something out of the wind. I think he was very intentional when he pointed to the temple that these two men went to to pray. This is now where we come to look at the first thing we see related to prayer. Our first thing that we see related to prayer is we see the people involved in praying. Who are these people who pray? One, we're told, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Some of your translations may call it a publican. This is who we need to look at. The Pharisee. What did he look like? What was he like? Josephus describes the Pharisees as a body of Jews 
known for surpassing the others in the observance of piety and exact interpretation of laws. These were the guys that were on the highest rung of Jewish society. They were the experts in the law and in all of the Hebrew scriptures. They spent years memorizing the Torah. And not only the Torah, but they would spend many more years memorizing the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. They controlled the synagogues where the religious instruction occurred. So they ultimately controlled the religious education of the people. Judaism today is a direct descendant of Pharisaical Judaism of Jesus' day. The Judaism that you see today, Orthodox Judaism, conservative, liberal, whatever it is, reformed, it is a direct descendant of the Judaism of Jesus' day. They were considered to be the holiest people in all of Israel. But do you remember what Jesus said about them when it came to salvation in the Sermon on the Mount? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, excuse me, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The people listening must have thought, there's, there's no hope. There is no hope. These people are the holiest people in the land. How can I even possibly begin to surpass their righteousness? They were the teachers of Israel. Remember Nicodemus back in John 3? Jesus said, aren't you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't know these things? They were the most highly esteemed group of people in all of Israel. And Jesus directs this parable to them. Well, this publican, who is he? Who were these tax collectors? How were they viewed in Jewish society? Basically, he was viewed as a Jewish trader who worked for Rome, viewed literally as the scum of the earth. Today, we might view this kind of a person in the form of a drug dealer or those who participate in human trafficking in some way. These are the people who prey on society, that make money off of other people's bodies and make a living stealing from other people. He was very much a thief because he overtaxed the people. He, Rome told him how much he needed to give them every month or every quarter or every year, and he could do whatever he want beyond that. So he would overtax the people so that he would be able to keep his fair share and give Rome their cut. Very often they were dishonest, lying cheaters. In the eyes of all Jews, they were on the lowest level of the societal ladder. There was nobody lower than them, not even Samaritans, not even a Samaritan woman. They were outcasts and untouchables in, G- in Jewish society. They were so bad that they were disallowed from public office and they were barred from giving testimony in court. That's the publican. Pharisee, publican. Opposites. Completely diametrically opposed to the others. These Jews who were listening to this would understand that the Pharisee and his prayer was going to be the prayer that God would hear. Interestingly, when you look at Jesus' disciples and you look at his followers, there were no visible Pharisees. There were no Pharisees in his group of disciples. There were no public 
followers of Christ who were Pharisees. Nicodemus was one, but secretly, he was afraid. And yet, Matthew, one of the twelve, was a tax collector, called from his tax booth to follow Jesus, and he did. Zacchaeus, here in, in Luke 19, public conversion, tax collector. Isn't that interesting that Jesus would make these two people groups the object or the subject of his parable, the subject of his parable? Well, second activity or second thing that we need to see in prayer is the activity they participated in. What is this that they're doing? They went into the temple to pray. What is it that they were engaged in? Ultimately, simply talking to God. The Pharisee, or I'm, should, I'm sorry, in, in Old Testament times, the prayer was a very formal occasion. It was not at all conversational. You're not pouring out your heart to God. There was almost a formulaic method to praying. Many times they would start by praying the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And then they would go on and tell other prayers. It was very biblical. It was very good. But this was not a time for an informal conversation with dad around the table or around the campfire. That was not what this was engaged in. It was very formal. It was very formulaic, almost. Third thing we need to see about prayer is the posture. Many postures are described in Scripture for prayer. We see people kneeling. We see people lying face down. We see people sitting. We see people standing. So there's nothing special necessarily in the posture that they're taking. And yet the posture that these two men takes tells us a lot about each man. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood. The Pharisee stood. Think about the Pharisee. Think about the type of person that he would. Why would he stand? He's likely going all the way into the inner court where he could be near the Holy of Holies. He wanted, to be the, he wanted to be near the holiest place in all of Israel. And as he's standing there, more than likely he had his eyes open, looking around at those around him and, and those within earshot. We know this because he, could, he describes things in verse 10. I'm sorry, in verse 11. He talks about swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. How did he even know the tax collector was there? Unless his eyes were open and he was looking around. He could have been standing with his arms outstretched toward the heavens, reaching for God. Oftentimes you see pictures of first century um, Pharisees that where their hands are up, outstretched looking to God. Very different posture we see in verse 13, though. In verse 13, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast. Can you just see the picture there? This man doubled over, bent over, pounding his chest with his fist, likely stayed into the outer court, knowing how all of these Jews would view him as a tax collector. He's a Jewish man. They know who he is. He receives their taxes, or should I say he steals from them. They're not going to let him near the inner court. As a Jewish man, he had the right to do that, but as a tax collector, you could forget about it. He had to stay into the outer court, 
the court of the Gentiles, the goyim, the outcasts. And he was probably even near the edge, maybe right around the corner from the exit, so that if somebody did have a problem with him, he could make a quick escape out and get away. He had his eyes closed. He was looking down at the ground. He was unwilling to appear that he could even begin to search for God. He was so unwilling. This man was beating his chest in contempt of his own sinful condition. He understood who he was before a holy God. The rabbis of the Talmud, the Talmud is a Jewish commentary on Hebrew scriptures and other rabbis, would say this about prayer. They said, one should not stand up to pray unless it is with a respectful awe. Do you think this Pharisee had a respectful awe in his prayer? Let's, let's look. Number four, the attitude of prayer. We're going to see what kind of an attitude did this Pharisee have. We've seen the people, the activity, and the posture of prayer. Number four, now we're going to look at the attitude of prayer. These two distinct attitudes portrayed in this parable are very closely related to the posture of prayer. Very closely related. The, the attitude of the Pharisee, verse 11, I would say it's the attitude of pride. The attitude of pride. This Pharisee saw himself as a very important person. We can see it in his posture and we can hear it in his prayer. Listen to what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Can't you just hear that prayer dripping with pride? And yet, in verse 13, what do you see? I think you see the attitude of humility. The attitude of humility. The position of self-loathing. You see it in his posture as he beats on his breast. You hear it in his prayer in verse 13. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We need to look at the fifth thing regarding prayer. Again, related to the posture, related to the content, I mean, related to the attitude. Number five is the object of prayer. The object of prayer. Who was the Pharisee praying to? Look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Can you imagine praying to yourself and then saying what he said? That's exactly what the Pharisee did. Praying to himself, a prayer of self-congratulation in God's presence. That's the Pharisaical prayer. The publican, praying to God, a prayer of self-loathing. As the people are hearing all of this, can you imagine what they're thinking? Can you imagine the Pharisees in the audience listening to this? They must have been seething with anger toward Jesus as he is condemning them for how they pray and who they are. The people are thinking, wait a minute, this, this is not possible. Pharisees don't pray like that. 
But remember, a parable reveals truth to those who are looking for truth and hides it from those who don't want to see it. And this is where we come to the heart of the parable. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. The content of the prayers. Number six, the content of the prayers. Look at the Pharisee's prayer in chapter 18, verse 11. God, I thank you. Sounds good, right? This is a good start to a prayer. How many of us start our prayers? Lord, thank you for, and we go on and pray. This is a good start. Or is it? Look at the rest of what he says, though. This Thanksgiving is not the kind of Thanksgiving that we would want to associate with prayer. Thank you that I am not like. Thank you that I am not like. I thank you. I am not like. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Who is he praying to? I. Five times does he say I in his prayer. This is not a good kind of thanksgiving. He's comparing himself in self-justification. That he is not a swindler. He's not a thief or an extortionist. That he is not unjust. So he is not, he is not unrighteous, meaning I am righteous. I am not an adulterer. I'm not sexually immoral. And I am not like this tax collector, this guy, this scum of the earth. He is self-justifying. He is very satisfied in himself and feeling self-righteous because of all of his good works. Fasts twice a week. Yeah, twice a week. How many fasts were actually commanded in the law? One per year. On the Day of Atonement. That's it. That's all that God wanted was one per year. He adds to that and says, not only do I fast on the Day of Atonement, but I fast twice a week. I fast on Mondays and Thursdays as well. These were voluntary fasts. We see fasts in Scripture. There are times in the Old Testament where we see fasts. Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai, receiving the tablets. David fasted after Saul and Jonathan were killed by the Philistines. He also fasted after Nathan the prophet confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba and the child that she would have that ultimately would die. Esther called for a national fast before going in to see Ahasuerus to save her people from annihilation and extinction. Daniel, seeking the Lord in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, also fasted regarding the length of the captivity. So we see people fasting in Scripture, but why were they fasting? For very specific reasons. Why is this Pharisee fasting? For himself. Because I am, this Pharisee saying, I am so righteous. What did Jesus say about fasting? Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Notice who he says fasts. The hypocrites fast. Truly I say to you, they will have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, 
Anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting twice a week is fine. It's fine. But do it in a manner that glorifies God, not yourself. What about this this pain of tithes, where he talks about, I pay my tithes of all that I get. Some Pharisees would actually pay tithes on the meal, that they would take 10% of their meal and set it aside as a tithe to God. These were tithes, again, going above and beyond what the Old Testament law prescribed. You can read about tithes in Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, or Deuteronomy 14, and it's just a very specific setting aside of your income for the Lord. Remember Jesus' teaching on tithes in Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Or Luke eleven forty two, he says this, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Notice, this Pharisee's prayer is also missing something. It's missing. It is void of any request. It is void of any request. He asks nothing from God. Not only does he congratulate himself for how great he is before the Lord, basically saying, Lord, you're you're lucky to have me. But he says nothing. He asks nothing from God. No mercy, no grace, no forgiveness, no help of any kind. Basically, this Pharisee is saying, thank you, God, that I am such a great guy. You're lucky to have me. Pride permeates every aspect of his prayer. And it sounds very much like other Pharisaic prayers dating from about the time of Jesus that when Jesus told this parable. William Hendrickson in his commentary on this passage, includes an example of a prayer recorded in the Talmud and originally uttered by Rabbi Nedhunya ben Hakana in about A.D. 70. So not long after this parable was recorded. And this was the prayer. I thank thee, Jehovah my God, that thou hast assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit at the street corners. Who sit at the street corners? The tax collectors. For I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to study the words of the Torah. They rise early to attend to things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself to gain thereby while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come while they run toward the pit of destruction. These are the kinds of prayers that the Jewish Pharisee, the teacher of Judaism, would teach to his pupils and to his followers. These are the kinds of prayers that the Jewish people learned how to pray. 
He's gone way above and beyond the call of duty. So God should be impressed with his record of service. Have you ever prayed that way without even realizing it? Thanking God that you're not living out the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh, the pride of life. Haven't you just made the grace of God into a personal accomplishment? Doesn't that sound a tad legalistic? I'm preaching to myself when I hear that kind of a prayer because I know that I've prayed that prayer. We might pray today, somebody might pray this kind of prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like this Pharisee. I resist any kind of legalism and I just live. I'm not a holier-than-thou type. I thank you that I'm not a hypocrite. But I am transparent and respond to my inner urgings since they are the real me. I thank you that I am not like the fundamentalist or the holiest holiness Arminian or especially like the five-point Calvinist. The problem is this. How does one impress the sovereign creator God of the universe who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who holds the water of the earth in the hollow of his hand or the universe in the span of his hand? How do we impress that God? When you really think about it, this Pharisee didn't even really go to the temple to pray, especially when you begin thinking about what he says. He just wanted everyone within earshot to hear him. Now let's shift gears. Let's look at the content of the prayer of the publican. Let's look at this content of this prayer. Verse 13. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This publican is begging for mercy. He is begging to be justified by grace. This word, translated here, merciful, is probably one of the most important Greek words in the vocabulary of salvation. It occurs only here in the gospel narratives. In all four of the gospels, it occurs only here. And it occurs in its verbal form, like it occurs here, one other time in Scripture. And that's in Hebrews 2.17. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore he, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation. It comes from the word group helaskomai, which is translated propitiation in our scriptures. Paul uses it in Romans 3, verse 25. He says this, I'm going to begin back in verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. 
this word also occurs in John's writings in 1 John 2, 2. John writes this. He said, he himself, Jesus, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then in John 4.10, he says this. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word, this word propitiation is so important because it carries with it the idea of the removal of sin. It carries with it the removal of wrath from the sinner. It also carries with it the covering of righteousness. All of those things are encompassed in this word. This publican is asking God to be satisfied regarding his sin based exclusively upon the righteousness of God. This is an incredibly bold request asked in a very humble manner. Another derivative of the word describes the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies within the temple, again pointing to the atonement for sin. I really love the way the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. They, they translate Luke eighteen thirteen this way. God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I have no reason to ask you to turn your wrath from me because I am a sinner. I have sinned against you, a holy God. You deserve to pour out your wrath on me. In justice, you can do that. But God, in your mercy, in your grace, remove your wrath. He understands he has nothing to offer God for his salvation except the sin that made it necessary. He knew he needed atoning forgiveness. He knows that he needs imputed righteousness. And this is the sinner's prayer. This is what a sinner prays that justifies him. He is confessing his sin in recognizing that he is a sinner. But not just a sinner. Notice what the text says. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Definite article, the sinner. He understands that he is the worst of the worst kind of sinner. It brings to mind what Paul said of himself back in 1 Timothy. As he's writing to Timothy, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. This tax collector understands that he is the worst of the worst kind of sinner. Tax collector. What was Paul before he was converted? He was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. As to the legal requirements of the law, perfect. I was self-justified, Paul said. And yet, all of that, he counts as rubbish when he looks at the surpassing greatness of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Why can Paul say that? Because he understands the condition of his heart. He saw that he hated God and hated Christ and he persecuted the church of God. 
He was determined to disbelieve in Jesus. And yet God, in his mercy, in his grace, turned Paul's heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and wrote his law on Paul's heart so that Paul would love Christ. This publican threw himself at the mercy of Almighty God. Calvin says, The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves go together. That is, we never have one without the other. To know God as the sovereign God of the universe is to know ourselves as his subjects in rebellion against him. And that is what we are as sinners. Rebels running a hell-bent race. To know God in his holiness is to know ourselves as sinners. To know him as love is to see ourselves as loved, though unlovely. To seek God's wisdom is to see our own foolishness in spiritual things. Since God is the only standard by which any of those things can be measured, we do not know anything properly unless we know him. Or, to put it another way, if we do not know God We consider ourselves to be sovereign over our own lives, holy, loving, wise, so on and so forth, when in reality, we know none of those things. The line from Augustus Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages, rings true right here. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We have been made in the image of God. God designed us to have a relationship with him. And yet our forebears, Adam and Eve, took it upon themselves to ruin that relationship. And because of that, we have inherited that sin. And now that relationship is gone. We are on a hell-bound race. We are indifferent to the cause of Christ, to the cause of God, without Christ in our lives. We don't care. We don't want God. We are so intent to live in our sin and to to live for our sin that we don't even know that God exists. We are like the atheist that just desires to know nothing except a hatred of God in how we live and how we act. And yet God, in his love for us, While we were still in our sins, sent his son to die for us. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God save some? Because he loves us. He loves his creatures. He loves his creation. And God sent his son, the son whom he loves, to die on a cross. John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Believing and trusting in the finished work of Christ alone, that completed work on the cross, that once and for all sacrifice, is what we need in order to be reconciled to God. 
in order to have that relationship restored. God so loved the world. He loved us with an everlasting love, a self-sacrificial love, a love that only God, the Father, could have towards his children. Fathers, you know this kind of love. You know the kind of love that a father, that you have towards your children. I know the kind of love that I have toward my daughters. A love that they could never do anything to destroy. There's no possible way that they could ever do anything that would take my love for them away. That is the kind of love that our father has. That God the father has towards us. And it was so rich, and it was so deep, it was so merciful, it was so gracious, that he gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a propitiating sacrifice that removed sin, removed wrath, and imputed righteousness. He gave his son so that anyone who trusts in him, whoever believes in him, shall not have shall not die, shall not perish, shall not enter into the second death. You will not end up in hell, but you will have eternal life in heaven. That is what this publican was praying. That is what this publican wanted. That is what this publican needed because he knew the condition of his heart and he knew that he was relying on a gracious and merciful and loving God. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Beloved, if you are here right now and you have not believed or trusted in the only begotten Son of God in Jesus Christ, As your Lord and Savior, do that. You need to pray the sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner, so that he will look on you in mercy and grace and remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that gives you the gift of faith and trust and the ability to believe with saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. What is the result of this kind of prayer? What is the result? Lastly, number seven, the result. I did say six things, didn't I? I'm giving you seven. The result of this kind of prayer. Verse 14. I tell you this. This man, this publican, went to his house justified rather than the other. Whoa. As the people are hearing this parable, they're thinking to themselves, this is heresy. This is heretical. Because that publican is the scum of the earth and he deserves to go to hell. He deserves to have the wrath of God poured out on him. This Pharisee is holy and righteous. And yet, what does Jesus say? The Pharisee returned home without receiving justification. It was the publican who returned home justified. One was blood-washed. The other was whitewashed. Romans 3, 21 and 22. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It is for those who believe. Paul continues, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the kind of justification that is taught here. Justification by faith alone. This was the gospel that the reformers almost 500 years ago recaptured and reclaimed from Rome. The gospel of justification by faith alone. And we know that those who have been justified by faith alone have a promise from God. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus turned their world upside down with this parable. Pronouncing that it was the sinner who was not guilty and the self-righteous who remained guilty. For the Jews, justification was the judicial recognition of the righteous, not the judicial pronouncing of sinners as righteous. Jesus' pronouncement of justification by faith alone was seen as sheer heresy. The word justified here in this verse is a very Pauline word, if you will. It occurs only here, again, only here in the gospel narratives. The Greek word here literally means having been permanently justified. It is used in the forensic sense of being declared not guilty. It's the judge ringing the gavel, not guilty. John MacArthur says this in his commentary. Without any works, merit, worthiness, law-keeping, moral achievement, spiritual accomplishment, ritual penance, good works, or any other meritorious activity... This guilty sinner was pronounced instantly and permanently righteous. The only righteousness acceptable to God is the perfect righteousness that no amount of human effort can earn. Since it cannot be earned, God gives it as a gift to penitent sinners who put their trust in him. But the self-righteous pride of the Pharisee and those like him only increased his alienation from God. His soliloquy merely solidified his confidence in his own righteousness. And he left in a more wretched state than when he came. Atonement is worthless to the self-righteous. The work of Jesus on the cross is not mentioned in this parable because it had not yet occurred. The salvation of the tax collector was an Old Testament pre-cross conversion. In any age, righteousness and justification are granted by God apart from works through the application of Christ's atoning sacrifice before and after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's why we have the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Because they saw this coming. J.I. Packer once wrote, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. So, What kind of prayer does God hear? The prayer of the humble, contrite sinner who fully relies on Christ alone for grace and mercy. 
This parable perfectly illustrates justification by grace alone through the humble confession of a sinner who is totally void of any personal righteousness and how that person may be declared righteous before God instantaneously through an act of repentance and belief. That is the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the sinner's prayer. Be gracious to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Position in the temple or in the church means nothing. The position of the heart means everything. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Trust in Christ for your salvation, not yourself. Scripture consistently teaches over and over and over again that sinners are justified. They are declared not guilty when God's perfect righteousness is imputed to them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was only on this basis that the tax collector or anyone else could be saved. So, what do we take away from this? What are the implications of this parable? Two implications. Number one, works righteousness through man-made religion is utterly worthless. Works righteousness through man-made religion is utterly worthless. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's grace. There is no amount of money that you could perform or that you could earn, that you could develop, that you could print, that could buy God's grace. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. So what is the other takeaway then? Number two, it is the humble who are justified. It is the humble who are justified. Or to say it another way, the damned think they're good. The saved know they are wicked. The damned believe the kingdom of God is for those worthy of it. The saved know the kingdom of God is for those who realize how unworthy they really are. The damned believe eternal life is earned. The saved know it's a gift. The damned seek God's commendation. The saved seek God's forgiveness. Fathers, pray this way with your families. Pray this kind of prayer. Keep the gospel in the forefront and lead your families. Remember what James says. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Father, we thank you so much for this parable. You gave your son the opportunity to teach the people, and he taught them so well. And we thank you for inspiring Dr. Luke to write it down for us so that we would be able to dive in and mine the riches in the depths of this parable, understanding that it is the humble who are saved. It is those who rely on the shed blood of Christ on that cross alone who are saved. Because it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is your gift, Lord, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen.